Church, actually, uh, this is, uh, let's do a bit Rock Nation style. Can you stand to your feet and give a big round of applause for Stuart Hanna? <laughs> Bro, I would have intro music for you as well. I didn't get a whoop out of you. <laughs> good morning, everybody. I've got to agree with you, and it's a good day to be alive. It sure is. Okay. Are we sitting comfortably? Have we got Bibles with us? Let's look up Ephesians chapter 2, taking it from the top, first 10 verses. I'll read it out, but I'll give you a second to get there. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Amen. My title this morning is Alive. It was going to be Dead or Alive, but I really didn't want to give you any choice in the matter. <laughs> so this morning, I'm talking to the alive. Yes? The alive. Okay, but there is a, a before and after theme to this Scripture. Before, you were dead. You were unrighteous. You were objects of wrath. But by grace, you are saved. You are raised. You're recreated. Let's take a few moments, though, to look a little more deeply at this. The BC, if you like, the before Christ. Have we got, well, can we go back to before? <laughs> Magic, right? Let's look at before. Before, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, Paul is probably not speaking about physical death. Calvin insisted that Paul 
is speaking of a real and present death. Real and present death. Now, that's a, a curious phrase, but it kind of goes along with the, the notion that sin places a body of death on us. In Romans 7, 24, Paul describes the effects of sin. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Now, I've always taken that to be his, his mortal body, but this is actually a much more dramatic phrase than I first realized. The phrase refers, this was news to me, but this phrase refers to a shocking execution that was employed by the Romans. A cadaver, that's a deed body, would be fastened to the condemned person so that he couldn't be released from the corpse. Every move he made, he was accompanied by the deceased. And the decaying flesh on the cadaver would spawn disease and infection upon the condemned man. And eventually, he would die a slow and painful and quite emotionally horrific death. Anyone else heard of that before? It was a new one to me. It was quite a shocking one to me, and it put a different spin on that phrase for me as well. Living in sin is equated with slowly and painfully dying. Not an eternal death later, but a present tense dying now. But Paul said, you were dead. And the operative word here isn't well, it's not dead. It's the qualifier, were, that's important. You were dead. And as we reflect on our past, we must keep in mind that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we were dead in sin. But by His grace, we're no longer dead in sin. But Paul doesn't just stop at this point, you were dead. He goes on to say, not only were we dead, we were unrighteous. That means not living in alignment with God's will, not being in the right relationship with Him. It's the way in which, verse 2, in which you used to live. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. I read another story this week, and it's about how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And by, by way of a warning, I found it every bit as distasteful as the explanation of the, the cadaver as well. But it did give me a good insight into the consuming and self-destructive nature of sin. So, first, the Eskimo coats the blade of a knife with animal blood and allows it to freeze. And then he adds another layer of blood and allows that to freeze, and another layer, and another layer, and another layer, until the blade is completely covered and concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes the handle of the blade securely into the ground with the blade turned up. Now, when a wolf 
with a sensitive nose follows the direction to the source of the blood and he discovers the bait, he licks it and he tastes the fresh frozen blood. But then the wolf begins to lick faster and more and more and more and more vigorously. And he's lapping at the blade until the sharp edge is bare. But he gets into a bit of a frenzy by the stage and he's licking harder and harder at the blade. And his craving for blood becomes so much that he doesn't notice the razor sharp edge of the blade as it cuts into his tongue. And nor does he recognize the instant where he's been satisfied by his own warm blood. And his carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more until he's found dead in the snow in the morning. So I'm sorry if I've elaborated on this point a little bit too much for you <laughs> this morning. But I don't want us to picture some kind of pet sin in our lives that we tolerate or even indulge from time to time. It's a monster, and it will destroy us. Now, like the wolf, Paul says that we were consumed by our own lusts. We were like this BC. We were like this before Christ. Now, our willingness to yield to these old habits, to live in the sin resulted in our death. And as Paul says in verse 2 and 3, he says, we became objects of wrath. Colossians 3, 5 to 6 also explains this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We were spiritually dead and deserving of God's wrath. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then there is very little reason for hope. But Paul, in this passage here, doesn't leave us without hope. Understanding the hopelessness of life without Christ helps us to understand better the hope that we have in Him. I think it was Billy Graham that said, before you get a man saved, first you have to get him lost. We have to recognize where we've been and where we're going and what it is that we've been given. The video that Stephen showed a few weeks back, um, to me it was quite enlightening. It was a little bit depressing as well, though, because in our world today, in our town today, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ is not readily received. Why is that? I think, certainly from the video and from what I've seen, most people are in a state of denial. Most people do not think they need to be saved. And saved from what, anyway? But that argument doesn't really stand up in the light of Scripture. And when you put it to the test, the Bible says very clearly that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have plenty that you need to be saved from. Paul says here, you need to be saved from death. You need to be saved from the power of sin to control our lives. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. 
That's just three things. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, look back on your past. Paul says that's where you were. That's where you were. So be happy. You're alive. You have been saved. And saved by grace. The next slide. The after. By grace you're saved. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. God stands between that grim picture of unrighteousness and death and wrath. He stands, God stands and moves that into a picture of salvation through Christ Jesus. God's the initiator of that plan. God's the creator. God's the designer of this strategy. God is behind salvation. So not only are we saved by His grace, we're made alive, the Scripture says. The definition of mercy is, and I'm sure some of you know this, it's having what you deserve withheld from you. In this case, we deserved wrath. We deserved death. But because of His love and His grace, He saved us and made us alive in Christ. He gave us what we didn't deserve. Gave us new life. As we read in verse 8, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You cannot earn your salvation. Paul makes it clear that it's from God, and it's from God alone. We've been given an everlasting gift, and for that reason, we celebrate. We're alive. We're joyful. We have been given an everlasting gift. And we are living in the time A.D. We're not B.C. anymore. We're A.D. That's where we're living in. That's our present reality. Not only did God save us from the power of sin and death and wrath, but verse 6 says, He raised us up. Whoa. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Think about that. I'll read that one again. Verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God not only saved us, He raised us up from death and sin to life and seated us with Christ. That has to be one of the most dynamic lines in the Holy Scripture. The term seated in verse 6 can be translated as enthroned. Can you believe that? Here we see a connection between Jesus' resurrection and our own being raised up. That's what he's done for us. Through Jesus, by his gift. That's what he's done for us. Oof. Romans 6, 5 says this. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So it's not just me saying this, okay? This is backed up. This is true. First Peter tells us in chapter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
When you think of what we were, listen to what we are. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Because of his great love and mercy, God reached down to the very depths of our sin and saved us from death and lifted us back up. And he recreated us. He made us new in Christ. In verse 10, Paul writes that we are his handiwork. Literally, we are his making, the work of his hands. We've been created. We have been formed. And this is not some kind of general sense. This is actually in the sense of a, a new creation. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. If we get that last slide up. Paul says we've been recreated, made for good works. For good works. The emphasis here is on holy living, the exact opposite of how we lived in the past. Most people, most people believe they're going to heaven. And I read this during the week. It was, uh, it was a Baptist pastor called Brian Archer that wrote this, but it really stuck with me. And if you take nothing else from this morning, just remember this. A person may go to heaven without wealth, without beauty, without learning, without fame, without culture, without friends, but nobody can go to heaven without knowing Jesus. You were born under the old management, as Brian puts it in this piece. He says, without Christ in your life, you'll live under that same management. Without Jesus in your life, you will die under the old management. Only by accepting the new management into your life and allowing the transforming power of Jesus Christ to direct your life will you have life more abundantly and a future with him in heaven. Now, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't made the decision to turn their back on the old management and turn their life around and live under the new management of Jesus, then I would encourage you not to let another day go past without having made that decision. Because there's nothing that you have to do. God has planned it, and Jesus has paid the price. All you have to do is turn your life over to him. The new management, the new way, and end up in a new direction. Become a new creation. So please, do not leave here without speaking to somebody, either the person that brought you or even me, if you, if you feel you have to, but don't miss the chance, the chance to start again. But here we are. Here we are in the present. We've looked at the past. We've looked at the BC. We're in the AD. We're in the present. We've seen the before and after photographs, what we were like, what we're like now. The BC and the AD. We were dying, we were separated from God, we were objects of wrath. Now we are saved and made alive and lifted up. But what's next? What are the good works 
that he's created and prepared for us to do. What is this great adventure that he's made us so alive for? I suppose the topic of Christian works would occupy a series on itself. Maybe we'll get into that sometime later on. But what is essential for us to know and what's essential for us to understand from verses 9 and 10 is that works don't save us. They don't make us more holy or more spiritual or more important to God. But works flow naturally out of who we've been made to be by the craftsmanship of God, by His handiwork. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. So they are important, they are crucial, but they don't earn us salvation or any more of God's love. We've already got that. Our works flow out of who we're created to be. They're the result of our salvation and not the cause of our salvation. And it's critical that we grasp this difference because it's extremely important for us to be motivated to do the good works because of who we are as saved children of God and not out of some kind of frantic sense that we need to work our way into heaven. That's not what we're about. And the last line here is quite reassuring. God has prepared all these good works in advance. He's prepared them in advance. I don't have to create them. I don't have to strive to make them up. But he's laid out all these opportunities for us. We don't have to do it in our own strength. All the appointments are scheduled. And that's how God works. He, pre pre he prepares these opportunities for us in advance. I mean, there's things, that, there's situations I've been in my life in the last 10, 15 years that I, I would have had no right to find myself in these situations, speaking to these people, doing these things. But when my life was turned over to God, it took a completely different direction. And he opened up the opportunities. I didn't go and find them. I didn't go and make them. But I've been involved in things that I don't have time to go into just now. But I sometimes have to pinch myself. Is this actually my life? And I know that many of you can say similar things. We've been places. We've done things. We've seen things. We've met people that by rights we shouldn't be in these situations. But God has opened up doors and given us opportunities. We've been able to help people when ordinarily we would think, I have nothing to give that person. But we've been able to be useful and be used by God. But he's prepared it all in advance. I just don't want to miss the opportunities. I think that's what I'm saying. Let's live close to him. Let's listen to his voice. And let's not be blinded to the opportunities and the works that he's going to place in front of us. Right, we've got a couple of minutes. We've got through that quite quickly, actually. I wonder if the band could get up and start to prepare. That would be great. I've got to say the song in the name of Jesus was fantastic at the start there. And it kind of summed up a lot of what I was feeling before today. So if you can play that, that would be great. But we've got a few minutes. And so there's something else that I read this week. And it got me thinking quite a bit. And I don't know if it was for me. Probably was. Or it was for the people coming back from Rock Nations. Or it's for all of us. I don't know, but it, was, it started with a question, this, this article that I read. It said, are you more like a salmon or a jellyfish? Uh -huh. But I've got to read that. Salmon. It'll make sense, don't worry. I'll go into it. 
salmon begin their lives in the fresh waters of cold climates, like our own. Not long after they're born, they begin a long swim downstream. Their destination is the ocean, and it's here that they spend the majority of the, their adult lives. Then something strange happens. Scientists don't even understand how, but at some point, the adult salmon begins to swim back home, and they may have swum thousands of miles from the original river before they turn to head back home, and they swim upstream against the current of the river, and you'll see it on nature programs. You've maybe been up to Pitlochra to see it, things like that, the salmon leap. But they overcome all sorts of barriers, waterfalls, strong currents, things that will impede their progress in North America. They come up against bears and come up against fishermen, you know, they come up against all sorts of things. And after this incredible effort, the fish spawn and then die. And the new salmon are born and they repeat the process. Now, you know this stuff. This isn't news to you. I know that. But it got me thinking. And like I say, maybe this was for me. Maybe it's for somebody else. But does your life have a destination? Are you going in a specific direction? And are you willing to face all obstacles to get there? And are you controlled by an overriding passion in life? Now consider the jellyfish. That sounds like a scripture, eh? Consider the jellyfish, thou sluggard. Could be, eh? It's not. I'm not making up things, honest. But consider the jellyfish. So this is what I read about the jellyfish. Jellyfish are born in the ocean and they die there too. They have limited movement, but they never really use what ability they have to go in any particular de destination or direction. They're moved along primarily by the wind and the waves and the tides, and they drift about stinging things and surviving. So the question is, are you more like a jellyfish than a salmon? Do you just kind of float there? and carried along by your circumstances or by other people's plans or with no real particular destination of your own. The difference between the salmon and the jellyfish is the same as the difference between people. Some people have a direction, most just drift. And the problem with that kind of life is that you don't really ever accomplish anything of significance. You reach your final days, you scratch your head and you ask, what was that all about? Jellyfish people never find or fulfill the reason for which they were created. And then you have those who have direction. And they can look back with satisfaction because they've discovered their life's purpose and they went full force in that direction. That kind of living is one of the secrets of success, I think. Successful people find and embark on their life's purpose. So, I'd like to get more into this, probably the next time I speak I will. It sounds exciting though. It sounds like there's more in this verse 10 about the good works that God's prepared for us to do, about being created and being His handiwork. There's, there's more in this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That sounds to me like there's a life to be lived here and here and now, a life to be lived now with the promise of being seated with Christ before us.
And I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Philippians. This is the, this is the scripture that's in the front of my Bible. It's just something that always sticks with me. Philippians, it says here, I think it's, not only have I, not that I've obtained all of this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And he goes on to say, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for what God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. These sound to me like the words of somebody who has been made alive in Christ. And I fully believe that God's call is more than worth being made alive for. Do we agree with that? Thanks for listening. God bless you. Amen.